0: Hello everyone, this is Drew Precious, Director of Communications at the Presidential Precinct. I'm pleased to welcome you to Season 3 of the Global Founders Podcast. Here we will share highlights of our latest virtual programming initiatives, originally aired as Zoom events on the Presidential Precinct Network, featuring the voices of our program alumni and trusted experts working to further any of our six core focus areas. Thank you for joining us today on the Global Founders Podcast. Welcome, everybody. It's really good to have you with us today for our program, which is on Allies and Gender Equality, Opportunities for Corporate Champions. I'm Neil Piper, and I'm the executive director at the Presidential Precinct. We've got a great conversation planned and are really looking forward to hearing from our guests today. I'm excited to introduce you all to Rick Goings and Susan Procaro Goings. Many of you might recognize Rick as a member of the Presidential Precinct board and chairman emeritus of Tupperware brands. Throughout Rick's uh, successful career, he's held a number of global senior management positions in Europe and Asia and the US. And during his tenure and under his leadership at Tupperware brands, the company received numerous awards and recognition, including Fortune's world most admired companies for eight consecutive years, Forbes America's most just companies and best employers and also Barron's hundred most sustainable companies in the world. Now beyond business, Rick's humanitarian and philanthropic efforts have been a fundamental part of his career and have emphasized women's equality throughout the world, and as well as children's safety and development. An engaged member of the World Economics Forum for many years, Rick's been at the forefront of thought leadership in Davos and gender equality and women's empowerment. He was the inaugural champion with United Nations He for She Women's Initiative and a founding member of their Leadership Advisory Council. Susan has been a passionate advocate for women's empowerment. Over many years, Susan has used her professional experience as a former news anchor and broadcaster to interview empowered women for a wonderful global initiative called Chain of Confidence. Uh, Women from more than 30 countries have opened up their hearts and lives to Susan, sharing their personal stories of triumph and cultivating confidence. Uh, Through their foundation, Rick and Susan provide financial resources for college scholarships and youth development programs for at-risk youth around the world. Uh, During their global travels, observing the great needs of children and teens, they began creating international youth clubs in Mexico and South Africa ultimately founding the World Federation of Youth Clubs, a new nonprofit organization that facilitates the education and training of young people around the world. Now, Rick and Susan, it's an absolute honor to have you both here with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been such an inspiration to you know, the thousands of leaders who have come through the presidential precinct over the years. And uh, so we're really pleased to have you with us today. And, yeah, I just want to give a quick reminder about the format of today's program. We'll hear from Rick and Susan for around 30 to 35 minutes and that'll be followed by 15 minutes of engagement with our audience. And I know that Rick and Susan are really looking forward to hearing from you. So, start out today by, you know, introducing yourself in the chat, say where you're from and throughout the conversation, you know, add your questions to the Q&A and follow the conversation. I'll come back on video and and, uh, make sure to ask uh, those questions of Rick and Susan. So welcome, Uh, Rick and Susan, I'll hand it over to you and uh, get our conversation going, thank you.
1: Uh, Thank you, Neil, for that kind introduction. um, I'm really glad that there are people watching today and who will watch this uh, in the future from many different countries because gender equality is absolutely a global issue and also an issue obviously here in the United States and from somebody who uh, had a job as the first female account executive for a network back in 1976, I don't think we've come very far since then. We could have done a lot better. But I have always been incredibly proud of Rick because uh, we have been married for 23 years and for all of that time as he was the chairman and CEO for over 25 years for Tupperware Brands, I traveled around the world with him and I watched him and gender equality is in his DNA. I mean, he, it's just natural to him to treat men and women equally. And so I have many questions for you, Rick, um, but um, regarding this issue, but I think it would be helpful for people to start at the beginning. What makes you have this innate, Feeling that men and women should be treated equally, especially in the workplace.
2: Well, by the way, firstly, what's uncomfortable about this is I've never had a someone interviewing me who I also have your picture <laughs> behind me. Can so,
1: put that picture down?
2: Yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. But guys, to all of you that are watching. Let me give you a little advice on relationships, and I've learned some of these things the hard way, hey, and some of these things the right way uh I've got to say, find a mate that shares your values, and that's why this isn't actually uncomfortable Susan and I sharing with you this conversation between because uh initially other than me thinking, my God she's beautiful and smart we we shared values and uh and in seminars that I've done around the world, I would talk about one of the most important things for an individual is to have affiliations with people with shared values and also respect for those who have different kinds of of values. I always say, show me who your friends are and I'll show you who you are. So we're all in this together trying to raise the, the whole consciousness of this important subject. Susan, your question. Um, you know, it, it, I guess it was instinctive because uh, uh, I was raised with a mother that was a strong woman. I uh, she uh, uh, she did not have a good relationship with with my father, but I saw a strong woman who actually one would be concerned sometimes with uh, Susan. You know her. You uh, know she. Uh, She lived till 96 two years ago. We lost her, but she was not one to have me be coddled. She was more uh, raised me with the attitude that, uh, hey, anything that doesn't kill you will make a better person of you. Uh, Honey, remember you early on, you noticed that, well, she wasn't really. You know, huggy kissy. Uh,
1: your your mom's idea of affection was a good strong pinch on the cheek.
2: Yeah. And I said, Mom, that doesn't even feel good. Yeah. But, but,
1: but I think your mom, and she I don't think she would mind me saying this, what suffered abuse. And sadly, women, children suffer great abuse, and some men, whether it's physical or emotional or verbal. And um, I think that that might've had an impact on her and she would have definitely have called herself a women's liver and a feminist, but what impact did that have on you and what makes you just innately want to help women and especially in the workplace?
2: Well, I think that set a tone for me of respect uh, for women. That was, my, that was my grounding, but it was very interesting. The first company I started was actually, it was called Dynamics, and it was mostly men. Uh, And what I would notice, because we franchised it across the country, I would notice when we found a guy who had a strong wife, the business seemed to do better when she had her oars in the water, and it started to turn my attention to, hmm, This is something that almost no one is really focusing on. And then when I was recruited to Avon and we had millions of women around the world and I importantly got sent to Europe and then uh, Hong Kong and I had those whole areas of the world, I started to identify that even though there were different cultures, different religions, the power of women and how so few people We're leveraging that. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, Nick Kristof is a friend of mine and and a writer for the New York Times. He and his wife wrote a book called Half the Sky, and really the concept that women are holding up half the sky. So if you're in business, you're looking for competitive advantage. You're looking for what's hiding in plain sight and women and, and leveraging their opportunity that was my competitive advantage through my business career i appreciated it
1: but you also recognized it and i think a lot of men don't recognize that potential in women or perhaps maybe they're threatened by it i'm not quite sure but as you would travel around the world and and i would often be with you and there are three million women who sold your products in almost 100 countries plus all the female executives at headquarters and in each of these countries and, and I would observe you and the encouragement that you gave them. But how do you teach other men to be like that? And also, how do you teach women to support other women? That, to me, is something that always irritated me more than men not supporting women, is that women don't always support women.
2: Well, there are two real questions or answers uh, to, to, to that comment that you make. Firstly... What I think, because we're talking to, uh, here at Presidential Precinct, the focus is all over the world, uh, and what is important to understand is so much of the narrative is driven by what's happening in Western Europe and the U.S. because they have a larger voice, and things aren't the same uh, elsewhere. There are, there are issues with regard to women's empowerment all over the world, but I'll tell you, you know, here in the U.S., it might be getting to the C-suite, becoming CEO or chief, uh, you know, marketing officer or whatever. But you get to many of the places in sub saharan Africa where she has to go, you know, to get water, travel miles. Uh, it can be an issue of her, her being not respected to the point of she's abused and raped. So that we deal with different subjects and degrees all over the world. And you have to be sensitive to those. Have to be sensitive that, uh, you know, one of our largest markets was Indonesia. Indonesia's a quarter of a billion people. And it's interesting, they're 85% Muslim. And yet the president of our company there was a woman. And by law, the man is the head of the household in Indonesia you have to appreciate what you're dealing with culturally and how to bring it forward. And, and, you know, you were there with me, Susan, I'd start out by having her bring him and we'd have thousands in the audience. And I would start out, I don't speak Bahasa, but doing a seminar that we'd talk about the differences between men and women. And I was really talking to him to get him to understand the magic in his mate. And we start out by a picture of the brain, man's brain, woman's brain. And what you start to notice is in the in the woman's brain, there's a thing called corpus callosum. Uh, men have it too, but women have 30% more. And it's think of it as Wi-Fi for the brain. And she really was bred to she can multitask. She right brain, left, left brain. And if you go back to really You know, this is prehistoric times. His job was to hunt and protect the family. Her job, everything else. And so I would start out uh, by this kind of a premise with them to kind of disarm men and, and have them feel comfortable where we started to see, wow, I've got something of a magical power there in my house if I'll start to empower her.
1: I I personally observed that, and it was amazing how these men went from not supporting their wives to being very supportive, and many of them working with their wives. I also interviewed a lot of women who uh, worked at Tupperware, sold their products. Uh, One woman from Japan, uh, for 25 years, she never told her husband that she sold Tupperware because it would have been humiliating for him because he was the head of the household. Another woman in South Africa was sneaking behind her husband's back and selling products. Eventually, he went to work for her, managing her warehouse. And these women become very successful. And the more successful the women are, their families do better. Their children become educated, and that filters down into their communities, and and helps everybody. But and I and that was a brilliant idea. I don't know how can you. Um, use that same premise in a company that's not so centered on women. Are there other ways that you can suggest for people, small companies, big companies?
2: Well, I think one of the ways you you get others behind you is you demonstrate success uh, with it. And when they see success, uh, others follow it. So that's why I would look for those venues where I could share those secrets, uh, which were not so secret, Uh, with other men. But you brought up something, Susan, really important, too. Uh, I think it was, uh, you know, I I think it was not amazing that how men would shift once he started to see, oh, my goodness, my life gets better if I support her. Uh, uh, The biggest issue we generally had was women supporting other women uh, out there. Uh, Men are kind of grown, and whether it's sports or whatever, they have to work in teams, you usually, we would have to hold women's seminars and to get her, we did them all over the world to show her how to support other women. So she didn't compete with other women. She cooperated with other women and appreciated them more. And uh, uh, that's why it also helped me appreciate more how lonely the fight was for equality for women, because often they're fighting themselves and not getting the support from other women that they really need.
1: So inviting the men to participate, actually bringing them in, intentionally bringing them in. I always felt with the Equal Rights Amendment that it might've passed if those that were in, in control of that at the time if they had engaged men more in the fight for equal rights and shown them that they could have been partners and that it would have benefited them. The other thing is, is what you say about having um, seminars or sessions for to help teach women to be supportive of women, which makes me think of the World Economic Forum. And you and I started going to Davos, Switzerland for those sessions every year about 15 years ago. And I remember the first time um, First of all, it's not a glamorous thing. It's freezing. It's often below zero every day and snowing and there's ice on the streets and and it's kind of tough to, to get from place to place, but we would map out which sessions we were going to attend. And you and I looked and there was not a single session about women related to women or even you know, even uh, a minute issue regarding women. And so you said about, to change that. And so we started having our own sessions. It might be a luncheon. They became so sought after that we would have to turn people down because the room couldn't accommodate. We were adding chairs and chairs and chairs and it was men and women wanting to come. And so why do you think that the World Economic Forum in particular pushed back so much on that?
2: Well, I think a part of the issue at the beginning uh is uh it became somewhat of a talk fest up and they were or excuse me at, at, at wef and we were looking for subjects that interested the individuals because generally you put out things in the congress hall that you think people are interested uh in and there weren't enough it was a signal for what was happening in the world uh there and that's all where it came came together i do remember and you will too, that when I started doing television interviews and I would talk and complain there at Davos about this is ridiculous. Uh, uh, Some of the subjects we're talking about, yeah, they may be interesting uh, and exotic, but they're standing in front of us is the incredible power of almost 4 billion women around the world who were really, we're not leveraging all that they could add. And I I said, hey, I'm not gonna get invited back. But I kept getting invited back and more and more. And I think last year, I mean, there were a dozen events going on that had to do uh, with women. Do you know what I think this gets to though? This is, you mentioned the the, uh, Equal Rights Amendment here. This country, this is when people ask me the so what? So what do you do about this? I believe the start of making change is the start of changing the narrative. Anytime you say, well, the reason that's not right, it's not fair, and you come at it from a social justice standpoint, and please believe me, social justice matters, but when you come at it from it's not fair, you make victims, of the individual, and when there's another story, what moves people is when the light comes on and they see, wow, the power of women and what they really can bring to the world and prosperous. You show me, if, you know, if you've got a, uh, if you've got money to give, and give it to a woman, she'll spend it on her family and her community. Generally, you give it to a man. More than half he spends on himself. I mean, it's the power of leverage when you start to recognize this with women.
1: Well, you're the one that told me, men think about me and women think about we. So, so you, you mentioned um, value, that women add value to a business environment. How, what, what are those values? I mean, what, what have you noticed over the years that make them so valuable, what are their values that make them valuable to a company?
2: Well, I think you start off by recognizing, as I was, I was saying, the differences. Women do have the power to multitask. They can handle a n- lot of different things at one time. Focus is important, but they can multitask. I used to kid that usually talked to a guy who's walking, watching a soccer match, and he loses his hearing. I mean, he's he's so focused on, on what he's doing. She can keep a lot of plates spinning. And and by the way, that's welcome welcome to the world. So you get that added benefit. The sensitivity of women with regard to, uh, I mean, generally, you know, you know this personally with, with me. They're generally better judges and feelers on on. Uh, other individuals, they get, there's a sense they're, they're more in tune uh, uh, w- w- with that, uh, wired better uh, for it. Uh, you get you know, many of the greatest marketing people in the world are women because what she can really sense. So the, the, it is, it's interesting. They're even learning this in the military around the world. They used to think women are too frail uh, to be in battle. Not so. Yes, there's different configurations, but the, but the heart and the will of a woman is so strong. And that's why, hey, let me tell you, all you've got to do is, you know, look, look at some of the animals out there, whether, whether you go to elephants or horses or whatever, it's the, the head of it is a woman. And when you recognize that power, why wouldn't you use that?
1: Well, what advice would you give for men and then also for women regarding gender equality and moving forward?
2: Well, the start off is accept the fact uh, that they have unique qualities and help change this narrative. Uh, Okay, Uh, number one. Next, you've got to, I think, start filling the pipeline with women and giving her the opportunity. I think at the same time, this relates to your point about women supporting other women. What I'm so happy to see now in the 60s and 70s, a woman basically thought to get to the top, she needed to act like a man, even down to what she wore. Don't act feminine. Uh, my goodness gracious. I mean, uh, you know, uh, somebody was saying it the other day. You really want to talk about how tough women are. They had to dance like Fred Astaire, but they had to do it backwards and high heels. Uh, women have talent. So you filled the pipeline. Then, very important question you asked, too. Bain did a study of women about the same area coming from the great schools and being interviewed at the beginning with men, and where do you think you'll be with regard to, could you ever make it to the C-suite? The, the top, in the beginning, she pretty much had the same belief uh, uh, of, of what was possible and her, her potential. After five years, it had dropped by 50%. And when they did interviews, they said, well, what, what happened? It was the operating landscape. He had people around him that supported, usually guys that supported him. She was in there fighting for herself, and that's why there's this incredible need. Okay, we've got to get women supporting other women, but we've got to get men sponsoring uh, other women. That's how you make it through through this, and you get her ready for what's next, and you give her the assignments.
1: Yes, yeah, sponsoring and, and mentoring. But um, I, th- I think women are also really good with, with details. And for me personally, when I first applied uh, for my first important job and I was told you're a girl and we're not going to hire a girl, that was a motivator for me. And I think when, when women hear the word, no, I think that that should be a motivator rather than uh, give up. You have to keep pushing, but in the right way and in a nice way, you have to push.
2: Yeah. Do you know the, uh... I've had had people ask me, well, okay, so what have you seen with the impact when you in fact get women into leadership roles, uh, when you give her opportunity, what does it do with regard to her? Uh, And we were fortunate enough uh, uh, that uh, Eleanor Steele, who really was, uh, you know, my partner and her really heading up women's issues at at, at the company for 25 years and communications, Uh, she hooked us up with the Global Fairness Initiative, which was a nonprofit that studied the impact uh, uh, of fairness uh, in various countries. And they evaluated women in Mexico, a Catholic country and Indonesia, uh, a Muslim country who were engaged with Tupperware more than three years. Amazing the what they got back, four things, and it happened in both countries. After three years, she changed her self image from I'm not good enough to I am good enough. And actually, one third said, I'm a leader. Two, she became connected to other women. Seventy percent after this period of time, had either a smartphone or a computer. And by the way, when you get women connected to other women, that is incredible power. Third, she went from lower class to middle class. And fourth, and this is I'm proudest of, in a world where most women uh, before they die, one out of three will be abused. He went from having almost a belligerent attitude about her to supporting her. And actually, in many cases, he was working for her within three years.
1: You mentioned she became a leader often. Well, here in the United States, there are about 50% of the workforce is female, but less than 20% of those women are in leadership roles. Why do you think that is? And what can we do to change that before we turn this over to questions with Neil?
2: Well, actually, you know, it, it's, it's only 6% that are CEOs. Here's, where we, here's why we started this at, at the United Nations. The Undersecretary General Kumsele started this. We, we created a thing called He for She. It starts with, he controls almost all the jobs. And, uh, and, and so we tried to bring a board uh, for those originally people Uh, Heads of companies, heads of state, heads of universities, because here's what we're getting at. It's the tone at the top. And when you've got a chief executive officer, a president of a country, uh, the head of a university that recognizes it, that it's not a, this is not about, this this is not about, it's not fair. It's about leveraging power and potential that's what really starts it, uh, uh, but it's not going to happen overnight. It takes time, and that's what I, I go back to my earlier point. You have to fill the pipeline, and the pipeline can take several generations.
1: And, and it will take several generations, and as I've seen with our five sons, that um, I, I think that they, every single one of them treats women uh, or treat women exactly as they would a man. They, they don't see them as any different when it comes to things in, in the workforce. And I, I, my hope is that uh, that generation, when they get to be our age, it will be a very different case. So well, thank that's, you. Well,
2: that's the good news, Susan, right now is that it's not only happening. And I think a lot of that is the way we raise them. But at the same time, this generation, starting with millennials, has a different attitude uh, uh, about it. And that's why I'm very, very, very hopeful uh, about that.
1: Well, let's get Neil in here and he has some questions for us, hopefully. Thank you, honey.
2: Well,
0: first of all, the two of you are amazing. And uh, this this conversation is so inspiring, I think for all of us who are you know, committed to Um, you know, providing gender equality around the world and and playing a role. And I think it's going to take everyone, right? It it takes everyone playing a part. And uh, we've got a lot of uh, questions lined up uh, for you both today. And, you know, I want to start with, let's just say that you're, you know, an entrepreneur from, you know, anywhere around the world. And let's just say you're in a, a male driven industry, whether it's a technology Uh, company someone who's got a software uh, company where you know there's mainly male engineers or let's just say you're in politics and you're in a a, you know a counselor uh, and you're looking around the room and it's all males uh, in the room with you and you know a complaint is you know we want to hire women we want to bring women to the conversation but um, you know no one's applying or you know there's not a talent pipeline there because it has been so male driven and um, women aren't applying because they don't see a, a role for them or don't feel they have the skills to be there. And, you know, what, what advice do you have for folks that are on the line that um, might be thinking about this and, and thinking of strategies to ensure they're, they're hiring women at an early stage or getting them ready to, to, to lead in, in some of these positions?
2: Well, you know, I, I have been a, uh, not a proponent of affirmative action, uh, but more uh, of affirmative behavior. Uh, uh, because affirmative action often just it makes victims out of it. But you've got to look at the numbers. And that's why in tone at the top and my leadership, uh, you know, my, my almost 50 years of doing that, that, I would in fact look at my management teams and I would encourage them. I wanted diversity and it wasn't just about women. I I wanted diversity with with regard to uh, all efforts from from race, religion, you know, it, it went across it. And so we would have dialogues about that, but you have to then, you have to put numbers out there somewhere And that's the only way you can start to see, are we making any progress there? And we noticed that in certain cultures of the world, they would say, no, no, it's not possible here. We would find a way to break through there. So you had to pick people who could be shining lights for the future and to just put someone in the place, a woman, for example, who really wasn't capable and qualified, and you did it because, well, she was a woman, you hurt the cause. And I can tell you that during the 60s and 70s, that's what happened in many parts of the world. You you get up, somebody, re- you know, and they weren't ready for it. And they're, and they're, and everyone is looking for them to fail. And guess what? They failed. So you really have to spend your time. That's why the mentoring and the coaching is so important because you get her, her in that role, she's got to win. And she's got to win because she's carrying with her the entire gender. Susan? And, and
1: sadly, if, if a woman is does achieve and is appointed to a, a leadership <laughs> position, such as CEO, but she fails, then unfortunately, it's bad for other women who follow behind her. Hmm.
0: We've got a good question from Mark Shamley, um, states the gender gap, uh, pay gap's a problem, Uh, women earn on average 79% of the average male salary. Uh, What steps would you recommend to close the gap and who's responsible for uh, leaning into this issue?
2: Well, in general, that that you see it, most of the criticism of that uh, in Western Europe and in the United States, it's much, Worse than that, uh, she doesn't even get in. Uh, to you know, it's interesting. You go into the Kathy Bertini was Undersecretary General of the UN and uh, and was number two, and she uh, she was on our board for many many years. We used to talk about it that if there was an empty seat in the classroom in Africa, the boy got it. Uh, uh, she didn't get it, so it was much worse. Uh, than than that, you've got to start by getting her in there. Uh, it's very difficult from government to legislate behavior. You've got to cause belief in, uh, in the change out there, and I'm happy to see that's beginning to change. You see it with regard to the higher context, uh, you know, economies uh, of the world and more developed. It is. It is moving, but it's too damn slow. Yeah.
0: Can you give us an example where you saw men resisting a, kind of a particular effort or policy to advance women? And you know, what strategy, you know, if, if you've seen that, what strategies have you seen to be effective in overcoming this resistance? And uh, second question
2: is how do you enlist men as, as allies? Well, I saw that happen, particularly. It, it it varied by cultures of the world. You would see it much more so uh, Latin American, the machismo cultures. It was really hard uh, to get it happening there. And you know what? We started to look for look for the white space, look for the place where she can win, and so that. You just don't have to man mandate it, and I was saying this goes back to the the power of women. Uh, gosh, we used to see this with regard to great marketers were often just women had to feel uh, uh, for it, and we'd get them in those kinds of markets. You'd wedge them into a marketing role, and then all of a sudden, other parts of the businesses would say, can we get her? Can we get her? So you then start to convert believers. You just can't mandate uh, change with a lot of success. You've got to cause behaviors and actions that reinforce it so that change people's uh, minds.
1: I think girls and women uh, need to prepare themselves so that when the opportunity arises, you are able to apply for that job. You, you mentioned STEM uh, jobs and often it's men who uh, are in those positions now. And, and there is great effort here in the United States, I'm not sure about the rest of the world, to get girls more interested in engineering and, and other things, but they have to be prepared. And when that opportunity comes knocking at your door, if you are prepared, then you're gonna feel comfortable applying for that job as well.
2: You know, right. it's interesting on that, uh, Google had a, uh, I guess it's been three years ago, they did an evaluation of their, their managers going through it. And you know, there's so much talk about STEM, 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 okay. Uh, I would say this when I would be in Sub-Sahara Africa and people would say, well, the key to the future of Africa is STEM jobs. And I said, the cavalry is not coming. We cannot wait. for for that, it's interesting, let me tell you where I'm going with this. At Google, their study, basically they said, what are the traits that really lead to the best managers in their company? They listed the top eight. Guess where technology was? Number eight, (laughs) eight, okay. As a matter of fact, all the others were about leadership. Empowerment, working together and collaboration. It was the kinds of things that were not had nothing to do with STEM. And so I'm not pushing against STEM, but we just can't wait for that. That's not the key lever. The key lever is behavior and attitude change that women can be great leaders and are great leaders.
0: Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Susan. I uh, get a great uh, question from Takwa from Tunisia, uh, and her question is: How do you deal with women who, you know, are resisting the success of another woman in an organization and, you know, purposely trying to make this person fail? Have you seen this, and what what are some strategies uh, that you might go about this?
1: I, I have personally observed that. Um, that's a really good question because each. Incident is specific and different. But I think you just have to do the best job you can. Don't engage with someone like that if you can help it. And um, it, I mean, we've, we've all seen ideas stolen by somebody else and presented as their own probably um, in school, in college, at, in the workplace. And you just have to learn and be savvy about how to uh, protect yourself, promote yourself without stepping on somebody else's toes, but you're gonna engage people like that just in life. And you just have to learn how to deal with them. And and, um, I wish I could give a specific, in my mind, I'm thinking of of instances that I, I observed it or I was the victim of it, but you just have to be the best person you can and you will rise above what that person's doing.
2: Well, I I know that Susan's talking about the broadcast industry and and uh, you know if you go in the broadcast industry uh, generally the only way you win is if you win over somebody else and all of a sudden you're the anchor or the this or that and there's a it it is a tough business with regard to that. Let me speak to this though. Back in the Indonesian example and and for all over the world, I am personally a great believer that you don't want to focus on the negative pieces of, of this. To, they always say when you're speaking to a, uh, an audience, don't spend your time working with the people who in the audience are never going to like what you're going to say. I mean, uh, the people who love you, there's three groups. The people who love you, no matter what you say, you know, they're going to love you. And you know, at the very least, they'll say he, he had a bad night. You want to really work with the people that you can influence in the middle, which are the mass uh, in the middle. Here's what I'm really getting at. Here is I said, you know, the only people uh, you ever want to get even with are the people who helped you, uh, and then you you just can't do enough for that. And when you find instances where in fact there's non-supportive people, focus on your own space do what you can there and, and you'll, you'll engage others there and do your best to bring them around. Uh, I
1: think if you take the high road, you're always going to be better off always. at the end. And, and for me, what she's you know, her, what she may be encountering is it, gonna be a small part, I believe, of, of her work life going forward. I am still extremely good friends with many of the women that I worked with decades ago. And it's because there were more women supporting women than not, even though that's a really tough industry and it is cutthroat.
0: Thank you, Susan. That was a great
2: question though. Uh,
0: this is a really relevant question to, to all of us as we're going through the COVID uh, pandemic around the world. Uh, and uh, this attendee asked, you know, the pandemic's having a disproportionate impact on the services sector, which has a workforce predominantly made up of women earning lower wages. Many women feel the brunt of the crisis in dramatic ways. Uh, what role should government, companies, and others play in addressing the specific needs of women, women
2: during this pandemic period? Well, Drew, you're getting at a that I think is a, a major problem here. That, along with with this whole concept of gender equality, is the growing gap between have and have-nots. Uh, I mean, you see it all over the world. It's happening. You see it in the United States. The, I mean, this middle class. The the key to prosperity in a in a in a country is not to have some rich people. It's to have a really affluent middle class that uh, can have a good lifestyle. And that's why we've got to deal with it. I think we've got to, you know, and uh, a lot of very conservatives will not like what I'm uh, saying on this. As I said, we we, I'm not talking about wealth transfer, but we've really got to rethink our whole distribution Uh of wealth, our tax situation, uh, how we redeploy resources uh, of governments. It's a shame how many governments of the world are what we're, they're spending on military and how little they're spending really eh, on some of the areas where we could do something with regard to it. This is what uh, you know what, what the whole subject of you know the two things that have caused most of the wars in the world have been nationalism and religion. And we've got to start more as, and this is what I know we're trying to do with Presidential Precinct, is we're focusing on the things, the things that we share in common and the growth of trying to have our lives grow from the person we are today as individuals to the person we could become. And when we start working across borders uh, with with individuals. And that's why you get down into the service industries, it's a shame uh, what's happening uh, there. We've got to find, I believe that we've got to find some short-term financial uh, incentives that we can, that governments uh, can in fact uh, initiate. Next, you know what I, this is one of the beautiful things about the United States Uh, Americans are, this is a country of immigrants. I'm an Austrian, you know. Susans are families from Northern Europe. You know, we're all immigrants here, except for the very few who were Native Americans here. This is a very generous country with regard to sharing with others, but it doesn't exist in the world to the same level. I think those of us uh, who... You know, it's the old saying, more is given, more is expected. We've got to start figuring out how can we help more.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Neil, I also want to add to that. Rick and I have talked a lot during this pandemic about the impact. Um, firstly, for those who are suffering, who have had COVID or family members, loved ones, it certainly has affected our family. Many people in our family and our friends have had COVID. We've had death also. Um, but also the the, the um, financial impact, as Rick was just saying, we talk about it a lot. And the, and the here in the U.S., the government has to step up. But I think a lot about other countries who may not have the structure that we have here and what they're doing, dealing with us. And our hearts just go out to them. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It's uh, such a difficult time for, for everyone uh, right now. And I know a lot of the folks listening in are, you know, don't have the luxury to. You know, it might be falling up later on, but don't have the the luxury to be on Zoom calls throughout the day. And you know, they, they can't socially distance and um, you know follow guidelines and because they have to be at work to to make an income. And um, our hearts go out to everyone um, who's who's having a challenging time uh, during during COVID. And uh, um, I, I want to follow up with one one last. Uh, question uh, before we close. And, um, you know, and and that's, you know, thinking of economic opportunity as a whole is, you know, developing uh, a stronger middle class uh, globally. And, uh, you know, to some of us on the call, the question might be obvious, but maybe not for everyone is that, you know, how does empowering uh, women really help in the economic sphere and, and ensuring that, you know, we're alleviating uh, poverty uh, more broadly around the world.
2: Well, I want to comment on that. And I'm looking at my iPhone for a minute and for the reason is that w- w- we have got to do something to provide more economic opportunity for women around the world. Uh, for the work done at Davos with the future of work, there's not going to be enough jobs uh, to go along. And then we go back to this conversation about, well, she's got to get education education certainly is important. Does it need to be STEM? I don't know. But what I will tell you is we keep, I keep this on my phone and I under my list and it says qualities not measured by cognitive tests. And let me tell you why I'm sharing this with you. That's why I love businesses like Uber that found women, many cases, women, who were, I will tell you the example uh, two years ago that was an epiphany for me, lady picks me up. Must've been in her early uh, sixties, black, had a child, maybe 12 years old, sitting in the front seat. She was taking me to a dinner I was going to, and I knew I was gonna have wine and I certainly didn't wanna drive there and back. It was in Orlando. And she said, you know, I can pick you up after this. And we agreed. But I started interviewing her, her name was Louise. And I said, Louise, how long you been doing this? And she said, oh, about six months. I said, how's it going? She said, I'm making twice what I was. What were you doing? She said, I was cleaning houses. I said, wow. Uh, and then, so I go to dinner, get back out in the car an hour and a half later, interview her more. I said, what'd you have to learn? Well, she said, I didn't have to learn to drive. I've been driving since I was 14. Uh, she said, I didn't have to learn Orlando. I knew it. I had to learn to do this Uber thing, but, uh, but you know, I could do uh, uh, everything. And then you know what got me to really thinking about Louise. Let me read this list quickly. Qualities not measured by, this is if you have degrees, great education, qualities reliability, persistence, enthusiasm, courage, passion, discipline, uh, compassion, motivation. Louise had those. And I've got to tell you, our 3 million women around the world I had the pleasure of working with for so so many years, that's what I would see. She would maybe have a 10th grade education, but she didn't have the opportunity or somebody to believe in her. So, You know, I'm too impatient to wait for STEM. I want to start finding things that we can do in countries around the world, hiding in plain sight opportunities so she can monetize all these things that she has right now. Most of the time she didn't need to go to school to learn this. She learned this from her mother and her, her father. Hmm.
1: And, and Louise hmm. is a good example, exactly what you're just saying, that you don't have to have a formal education to be no. very educated because she was educated in the things needed for that particular job. And, and maybe that's another thing is teaching women how to really write down, make a list of what your assets are. They may not be something that you learned in school, but you might be really good at organization. You might be really good at at writing. You might be really good at Typing, you might be really good. I mean, there's many, many different things, and you have to focus on those, emphasize those, share those, and and use those to build your resume to get different jobs.
2: And Susan, you get to back to that difficult question about when you have women not helping other women. What we learned, by having 3.2 million women at Tupperware, is when women helped other women, they prospered. Yes. Hmm.
1: In life in general, you do, yeah.
2: Susan,
0: Rick, any closing thoughts uh, before we depart today?
1: For me, I'm just really proud of what you guys are doing at the presidential precinct now more than ever. It's uh, really important during this these tough, challenging times for people and what you guys are doing and what you will continue to do to enlighten people uh, is is wonderful so just keep up the good work and we adore you Neil yeah
2: Thank and, and, and I must add uh,
1: Nancy and everybody else
2: <laughs> okay yeah behind the scenes Nancy yeah. Hopkins and Drew Precious who's really making this Boy, uh, boy, wouldn't you like to have a name like Drew Precious uh, why I would I mean-
0: love that name you walk in yeah. the room anyone's gonna meet with you
2: yeah why didn't they name me that uh do you know what uh I, I I've got to just Give a, a shout out and a congratulations to Jim Murray for the initiative to, to start the presidential uh, precinct, to throw the resources, and not only financial resources, but the time and the talent behind getting it, finding people uh, like you, Neil, Nancy and Drew and, and others to make it start to happen. Uh, I can tell you, I'm sitting in the conference room where we had some of the global leaders. Here's what it looks like. And the only thing lacking right here is 25 global leaders, and I want to see that come again in the future, where we can spend a couple days talking about these subjects of how you move from here to here, and how you cause it to happen in other people. That's what you're doing at Presidential Precinct. You're starting that motion.
0: Thank, thank you, Rick and Susan. And for for those who are on the, the phone who aren't familiar with the World Federation of Youth Clubs, uh, you know, please Google and do some research. And uh, there's there's probably a club in a community that you're you're currently serving. There's no better investment, you know, outside of women to invest in young people. And you know, with education and and time and resources and talents and having mentors and work that rick and susan are doing through their foundation and several the the leaders uh uh, from the organization are on the call today are doing just extraordinary work Um, and we're so proud to be connected to that work rick and susan and your leadership of you know making this happen along with so many other incredible things through global links and other organizations that you're focusing on uh you're making the world a better place and we're really honored to be connected to you and your story and your work and uh thanks for taking so much time to be with us today and to our guests from around the world uh thank you for being here with us you're all part of our extended family through the presidential precinct network and um we're just honored to have you here with us so thank you everybody
1: thank you thank you neil take care Be safe, everybody